Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Vancouver Real. I am your co-host today, Mike Zaremba, and always with me, usually with me, is uh, my brother Andy at the helm. Unfortunately, I don't have a camera today because we have four people around the table and we have an aerial cam. So I'm going to look up and wave to everybody up there right now. Hopefully don't lose my audio. And um, yeah, so I'm really excited about today's episode. This Likewise. is going to be awesome. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, and as usual, we're podcasting here out of uh, Float House at 70 West Cordover Street in Vancouver, BC. Float House is a commercial float center. Um, we were the first ones actually in Vancouver and now it's kind of a... Uh, North American wide trend is these flotation centers coming up, and basically, if you haven't heard of flotation therapy, it's a it's a experience where you go into a external sensory reduced environment, and this causes a pretty strong reaction to to our bodies, to our physiologies, to our psychologies, and um, predominantly for stress management, relaxation. So, if you're curious to learn more about floating, check out floathouse.com and. Um, you can find a whole plethora of information on there and uh, what it can be applied towards. So um, that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. And I want to just touch on quickly the Vancouver Real meetups that are going on. Right. We're doing monthly meetups and they are free for the most part. Um, we just completed one. Uh, it was a habits building workshop, which is fantastic. We had maybe 25 people out and we did a whole workshop getting people set up for the new year for success. So that was really great. Yeah. The next one we have is going to be at juice truck and it's going to be all about nutrition. So this should be a really excellent one. And so just, um, Connect with us on Facebook, and we'll post the event on there, or join the Vancouver Real Meetups group page, and then you'll get a, a faster notification when we have these things out, and you're not just relying on social media. And it's really awesome to have this community kind of building outside of just the podcast. It's great to have the you know all the, the stuff online, you know iTunes, Stitcher, um, YouTube, Facebook, but it's even better to bring that all in person and build real relationships within the community. And that's what the Vancouver Real Meetup is really all about. In fact, today we have a really special guest. We have Carlos with us today, and I'm going to flip the camera over to Carlos really quick. And uh, Carlos, when, when did we meet for the first time? Oh man, probably over a year ago. Over a year ago, yeah. And um, it's been really cool to see how people have kind of come out of the work, like yourself and Candace and Nicola. Mm -hmm. And now we have people that are literally volunteering their time uh, to be in and around the community and just help grow the podcast, which is amazing. And you're also the link between us and our guests today, which is uh, even yeah, better. That's right. So why don't you tell uh, the people about yourself a little sure, bit? Sure, a little brief introduction. My name is Carlos Nunez. I am a psychiatrist. I practice here in Vancouver. I wear lots of hats, but I primarily work out of St. Paul's Hospital. It's a teaching facility, so I'm also a clinical faculty over at the University of British Columbia. I am a husband and father to two young boys, and I dedicate some of my time here to Vancouver Real, to the community and the personal development aspect that we're, we're starting. So I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of this uh, interview, and thank you very much for having me here, too. Well, thanks for being here. And you're a very high-caliber individual, and, and we seem to be attracting people of high caliber. So maybe we're That's doing something you, right. I believe you are. Very cool. Cool. All right. Yeah, thank you for all the support you've had over the, the time we've been working together. I really no. appreciate it as a, an official thank you. And lastly, we'll put a little plug out for Omega Point YouTube channel. 
Omega Point uh, is our brother Omid Pakbin's uh, channel, who helps us behind the scenes here at Vancouver Rio with the video editing and and putting the audio, making it sound excellent for you while you're listening to uh, to these episodes wherever you may be. So go check out Omega Point on YouTube and Facebook, and you can see Omid's latest and greatest creations. And I believe he's got a really cool one. He says it's his most impressive one yet that he's working with Jason Silva for his shots of awe. So check out uh, Omega Point on YouTube and. Enough, enough of the fluff. Not that you're fluff. <laughs> Sorry. Carlos is no not problem. fluff. Yeah, <laughs> Carlos, that was impressive, man. Yeah. yeah. Damn, you're pretty smart. Yeah, <laughs> I know, eh? He's he's a, I daughter. mean, you, you didn't tell me all that. Yeah, he's <laughs> a humble guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which is even, you know, more noble in my mind. Um, but today we are very happy and very honored to have with us uh, Steve Maxwell. And I'm just going to spout this off a little bit, but... Um, We'll get more into your accolades and just your experience in general. And Steve is an American fitness coach, physical educator, and jiu-jitsu instructor. Um, he's been named one of the top 100 trainers in the United States by Men's Journal. You've appeared on the Joe Rogan podcast several times, London Real a couple times now. Um, obviously, we're affiliate with London Real. And um, I've personally really enjoyed listening to – I've listened to pretty much all your episodes over the years because I've just listened to his podcast for a long time just your philosophies, your approach to life, let alone your expertise in physical education, jujitsu. Um, you know, you've been fortunate to be like uh, training with some of the founders of jujitsu, the, the godfathers of jujitsu. Um, but long-winded Steve Maxwell, welcome to Vancouver Real. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So you came into town uh, last week. You're here for seminars. It's kind of what you do as a part of this nomadic lifestyle that you live. Um, which is a very curious topic, but uh, tell us a little bit about, I think, what you're doing now, but I want to dive deeper into your story a little bit because it, uh, it is fascinating. So what are you in town for and, and you know, what are your kind of day-to-day and what's your life looking like right now? Well, uh, Carlos contacted me and helped me uh, set up three different seminars. Actually, four. If, nice. Because this weekend yeah. will be a, a twofer. It'll be That's some right. uh, double mobility, whammy. Yeah, double whammy. Some uh, good old Gracie Jiu Jitsu self defense, cool. along with the mobility conditioning. So that'll be this weekend, uh, this Saturday. Um, I taught uh, a mobility seminar and a body weight strength training seminar. Being on the road as much as I am, uh, I've pretty much gone equipment free type workouts just because it's convenient. And I decided that I wanted to not be dependent upon equipment mm. to get a good training session. So I've come up with some pretty interesting ideas on how to use just your body, cool. so that you yeah, pretty much any time, any place, anywhere. Very cool. And like, because you've come back, you've come from a background of well, athletics, collegiate wrestling. You can tell by the ears. You got cauliflower ears going. Good old cauliflower. Yeah. Um, and, and the fitness industry as well. You've been a trainer and you've owned gyms um, for, for years and a long time. So you've been around like just health and wellness and, and training and fitness for a, a long time. And that's my background personally. Before I got into all this, um, I, was, I did a master's of uh, human kinetics at UBC and specialized all towards strength and conditioning. And I did that for a little bit, um, peaking with uh, a year with uh, a CFL team, which is a Canadian football league here. Um, kind of fell out of that personally. I, I, I lost a little bit of passion for it. I mean, I still use it in my personal life, but, uh, so it's really cool for me to sit down with someone like yourself who's been in it for, you know, really 50 years now. It's 
been a long time. I started out in the 60s as a young boy in yep. a little town called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Carlisle. And, I know uh, Carlisle. I, this, this was at the beginning stages of like maybe the obesity epidemic in the United States. And I was getting a little soft. My you father. Were soft? Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I was, you know, growing up in the bourgeois, you know, type neighborhood, you know, uh, I was kind of getting my butt handed to me by some of the neighborhood toughs. Hmm. And my father, being an ex-Navy boxer, he didn't like what he was saying. And he thought, well, we got to kind of man this kid up, <laughs> toughen him up a little bit. Okay. So he tried to teach my brother and I. My brother was like a, a year younger than myself. I uh, tried to teach us boxing, and I found I didn't really like it. Hmm. But what I was pretty good at right from the beginning was wrestling. And so he got me going out for the wrestling team. And then I just became really obsessed with grappling, wrestling, uh, conditioning, and so I was very motivated. Uh, Eleven and twelve year old boy. Cool. Very and, early on. Yeah, right. very early on. This is, right. uh, I guess, mid sixties uh, right. USA. And yeah. then later uh, was a health and physical education major uh, at Westchester State Teachers College, which is a university now. And uh, wrestled uh, Division One NCAA for four years, and then after graduating, got a teaching job and was coaching wrestling for a brief while. When I realized I don't really like working with kids that much, it's really hard. Yeah. I love coaching. Right. I loved working as a PE teacher, but the health classes and so forth, the classroom stuff that is also yeah. a requirement, I just really didn't like it at all. Yeah. It's just really tough working with kids. It's just, especially in, in uh, it, this is like the uh, suburbs of the Philadelphia uh, area. Okay. Pretty tough group of kids, man. Yeah, I can imagine. So yeah. um, I had always been working in the fitness industry part time. I had my first job in the fitness industry in 1970 as a as an undergrad at Westchester, just a part time job. Uh, that was in the old Nautilus Fitness. Sure. You know, back when Arthur Jones and the high intensity training model was, you know, pretty popular. Uh, back uh, uh, in Mike, the heyday of Mike Menser and some of these guys. Um, Miami Dolphins, the only undefeated team to right. win a Super Bowl, Nautilus trained athletes, you know. So people that say the machines don't work or they're not for that, no, no, no. It all works. Yeah. It all works. Sure. And so uh, I, since I had a little taste of that, I realized, wow, I really like working in the gym business. But the fitness industry didn't even exist back then. Mm. I mean, it pretty, you know, there was gyms. Right. But there was mostly hardcore bodybuilding uh, some physical culture type stuff, you know, like Gold's out in uh, – uh, you see the old pictures of Arnold and uh, sure. and Franco, you know, those those type of hardcore bodybuilding gyms. Yeah. Uh, Vic Tanny had a chain of gyms. But there wasn't really that much going on sure. until Jones came along and there was an explosion of these Nautilus gyms. Can I, can I add time and dive right in there? Because we've kind of talked about this in terms of um, our business here with floating and like when you're trying to introduce something new to people – and so, you know, we've, we've looked at floating and like, cause we know it's good for you. There's research backing it, but yet, you know, we're introducing something new to the public and we've looked at like, you know, yeah, things like yoga and, uh, probably even fitness back in that time area that you're talking about of trying to introduce people like, why should you do physical activity? You know, people just didn't know the education wasn't there, the, the ability to transfer that. So. What was that kind of period like in terms of like when you're trying to introduce somebody like maybe Joe Blow to, you know, physical education, fitness and, and health? Well, it's really interesting because, uh, 
you know, my father's era, you know, you work for a living. You know, he was a West Virginia farm boy. And, you know, a lot of people had physical laboring jobs. Right. You know, there were office workers, obviously. And physical culture had been around since the uh, late 1800s. Sure. But in my generation, I mean, literally, uh, my brother and I used to run for uh, preseason uh, wrestling or uh, football. Uh, it was not uncommon for the police to pull over and say, what do you – you know, what, what are you doing? Why are you running? <laughs> you know, what did you wow. guys do? What do you boys do? Yeah. We know you did something, so you might as well just fess up. What do you, what do you, what do you do? That's funny. You know, so it was uncommon to see people. Uh, this was before the running revolution and, sure. and, and so forth. But, uh, and it's also interesting because you didn't go to the gym to work out. You played sports. Yeah. yeah. But most young fellows, by the time they graduated high school, unless they're going on to university, that was it. Their heyday was in high school. So, you know, you didn't see men of that era continuing to work out. Mm. But very gradually, starting right about the 70s, that whole thing started to change in the U.S. And people realized that for health and well-being, you know, you got to train and and more and more research started coming out. And, of course, Arthur Jones was a huge part of that, you know, with the whole – High intensity Nautilus training philosophy because now people saw that they didn't have, uh, I don't have enough time as an excuse anymore because the short high intensity workouts were actually quite a boon to a lot of people that basically sat behind desks all day. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a combination of like research coming out, supporting, and then, you know, supporting these anecdotal t- cases probably at that time. You get these people that are naturally doing it, there's odd balls probably in different parts of the country seeing these results obviously athletes as well training and athletics have been around like nebraska strength and conditioning is pretty pretty famous because they were one of the earlier teams to do that kind of stuff right very hard nosed team as well and and then i guess it just kind of so you think it just kind of started seeping into the culture in north started america seeping america? into the culture and yeah. uh, you know and then uh very short time thereafter uh jackie Sorensen kind of revolutionized uh, women's training with the aerobic dance exercise movement. Right. Not that I don't have a few bones to pick with the concept, but at least you got women up and moving. Sure. And, you know, that whole aerobic dance thing just spawned in. Wow. It just changed right. everything. Then you had like high impact aerobics, low impact aerobics, step aerobics. They got the girls into these group exercise classes, which became pretty much the, the precursor to CrossFit. Sure. You know, it all had its origins in the women's group exercise movement. And nowadays, you know, you'll have the CrossFit group exercise classes, uh, group kettlebell classes and this, this type of stuff. Yeah. But it wasn't always that way. There were no group exercise classes sure. per se. Um, Yoga has been around for quite a while, but it was always kind of undercurrent. Uh, during the 80s, the Ashtanga yoga became extremely popular. The, I remember... Uh, a woman by the name of Beryl Bender Bursch wrote that book, Power Yoga. Mm. And, of course, it caught a lot of people's interest. Being a jiu-jitsu guy, I kind of, I kind of looked at it myself because I saw yoga as a, as a good good uh, training tool for, for uh, things like jiu-jitsu right. and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, how it all just started to take yeah. form and come into being. And then people realized that there is some money in this, you know. And right. that's just about the same era that the big box gym started Okay. Coming. Right. Big box meaning these big 
conglomerates, you know, like multi-chain type. Yeah, like a modern name would be like LA Fitness or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think what some of the names of the gyms were back in the day, but uh, a lot of them were pretty fly-by-night, you know. Right. (laughs) They would set up equipment and so forth and get people joining and, you know, then like a few months later, to skip town and oh really oh yeah and set up someplace else wow. that was not an uncommon uh, interesting yeah. that's interesting huh. one thing's interesting about your approach in particular is you have devised a system where you don't need gym necessarily you can go and work out wherever you are well i can't say i just devised it i mean it's probably been around since time immemorial you know i'm mm-hmm. sure if we went in a time capsule and worked at the shaolin monks or uh the knights templar or even before that with the uh um the Spartans and so forth, people have been using body weight training as a primary uh, strength tool for a really long time, specifically uh, in uh, as related to martial arts mm. and wrestling. Right. And most of what happened, m- most fitness is based on military needs. Why would people need to work out, Right. Well, well, you have a war. professional standing army mm-hmm. and you need to train young men for war. That's the origins of physical education and health and training and so forth. Right. And it's filtered down even to this day. So, you know, that, that that's pretty much the origins. Yeah. And now, you know, to, in this day and age, we have people exercising for health and wellness, longevity, functional longevity, those types of notions. You would hope. But right. so often it's... You know, I want to look good. I want to look good naked or, right. you know, a lot of people are training pretty much for vanity, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of psychology. Yeah, you're right. Like that's uh, something that I heard you speak about on London Rail and how, you know, you, you kind of stated like uh, you believe that a lot of people's motivation to work out on a very deep level is like just insecurities and their fear of death even, you know, and then just the unknown and that kind of element. Can you kind of uh, dive into that a little bit, elaborate? Yeah, well, there's four major reasons why people train. Um, one is for the very things we were just talking about, health and well-being. You know, you got to keep the body functional, use it or lose it, right? Yeah. It's just all part of the, you know, the biologic imperative. You got to, you got to stay functional. And if you're just sitting around and not moving too much, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to move around when you need to. Uh, the other reason is the vanity thing we just talked about. People want to have the buns of steel and the, you know, the, the, the eight pack and (laughs) six, not even good enough anymore. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the baseball biceps, you know, but that's a pretty small segment of the population, Mm -hmm. but you know, uh, women are invariably drawn to, you know, training really hard. Can't tell you as a trainer how many women would come to me that wanted to get in shape for the wedding, you know, so they could fit in the wedding dress. Mm. It was a huge motivator. Sure. You know, and then as soon as they get married, boof, that would be it, you know, unfortunately. Right. Not always, but a lot of times that, that right. would, you know. And then there was sports performance. You want to enhance your your performance in sport and so forth. You want to become a uh, a better athlete. But then there's a fourth subset of guys that are training just for the sake of training. They, uh, they're, they're lifting weights either as, as the sport. In other words, the amount of weight or number of repetitions is the goal as opposed to using weight training or when I say weight training, body weight is also weight training. You're sure. using your own body weight. Yep. But they're using strength training as their goal. Hmm. In other words, how much weight can I lift? 
How many pounds can I bench press? How much can I deadlift? How much can I Olympic snatch? How many kipping pull-ups can I do? The numbers become the motivating factor. Right. So they're exercising to be good at exercise. That would be your CrossFit model. Sure. That would be your people that compete in weightlifting, yeah. the competitors. So uh, maybe like things like Strong First where you're doing the five-minute snatch test. Sure. Or the kettlebell, uh, the GS sport, the Gearvik sport, where you know you're you're doing ten minute sets with mm-hmm. the kettlebells. This is competitive strength training, so they're the four main reasons why people do it. Right, and and it does change, by the way, as you get older. That's, yeah, you may start out in one <laughs> of those directions, like maybe the bodybuilding thing, or sure. or you know you wanting to put up really impressive. You know, numbers, numbers yeah. you know, or to show off to your friends with the human flag, you know, yeah. or something like that. But quickly you'll find that you are just trying to hold on to what you've built. And then eventually it just becomes just wanting to maintain your your body. Right. You know, I was wondering, because I have a bit of a personal question, actually. Um, normally, for the past few years, I've trained for functional fitness, being fit, um, being able to move my body. I was challenged in a group that I'm involved with to like, you know, kind of bulk up and they're like, let's, let's, let's all try to bulk up and see what happens. So we made, made this group call just to do that, just for the exact, you could probably say vanity reasons. Sure. Um, however, so I went back to how I would train when I was maybe in high school or even early uh, university and, um, and the past couple months I continually getting like little injuries. Like I, I tore or not tore, but I, uh, strained my tendon by my, my chest, my, my pectoral muscle. Uh, just today I was squatting, I pulled my hamstring and I'm not training super intense. I'm just training how I used to train. And now I keep tweaking little things over and over. And I guess my question is like, I'm 37 now. At what age do you notice that things start changing and you probably should get away from performance and start thinking about longevity. Well, the, the problem is if you are basing your desire for training on performance, you're going to eventually become disappointed. I mean, it, at some point, every man is going to have to face the fact that I'm going to get smaller, weaker. The muscles are going to shrivel up. Don't say that. And eventually I'm going to die. That's oh, the big no. fear. Yeah. Right? Because a lot of this is the fear of change and the fear of the gradual things that happen. Now, I'm not saying that you just give up. But what I am saying is you got to be smart about the way you train and realize that when you're 50, you're not going to be doing what you were when you're 20 or 30 or well, even 40. Man, 10 years can make a huge sure. difference. And here's what I'd like to say to you. If you are tweaking yourself and hurting yourself, take a very good look at your form and your technique. One of the principles that I teach in all my seminars is strength training should prevent injuries, not cause. So if you are getting hurt, you may want to put the ego in check. And lighten it up and use much stricter form and technique. Yeah. That means you may have to go a lot lighter than what you are now. Yeah. And forget about what you did in high school and all that. Yeah. Start looking at where you're at now. And you can still train hard. You can still train with intensity as long as the last rep is just as perfect as the first rep. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can, you can train your muscles into paralysis, literally, without hurting yourself if you use perfect technique. So yeah. every rep is perfect. Right. So you're not throwing the weight, you're not bouncing the weight, you're not che- getting cheat reps. Yeah. That last chin up, you're not like kind of bouncing and twisting just to make it or yeah. putting a little kip in there, or a little 
bounce of the bar off your pecs just so you can get that last yeah. rep. I wouldn't say I'm doing that. I, 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 you know, okay. I'm, I'm pretty controlled overall. It's just I'm just noticing these little little things, and I was wondering it's just uh, age be might be ex- a factor. It could be the exercise selection too. Could be. For yeah. example, at my age now, I would never think about doing barbell squats anymore. Right. I used to be a pretty big uh, barbell squat enthusiast. But, uh, you know, once I pass that middle age barrier, the 40, man, there's no way I want to put that yeah. heavy bar across my traps anymore and get that kind of shearing force in my spine. It, it's just, yeah, it's spinal there's so many things. different ways yeah. that you can get great hip, thigh, leg workouts without, uh, you know, subjecting yourself to these, this type of things. Yep. You know, Definitely. I, I got a question here too, actually, Steve, because since we're talking about strenuous exercise and different forms of working out, you know, a, a big aspect of working out, I think that some people are aware of others are not at all is breath, breath work, how are you, how you're supposed to breathe. And maybe can you talk a little bit about breathing in general and breathing during exercise? And I've become quite the uh, breatharian lately. Yeah. Nice. I, I, uh, I didn't know much about it myself, actually, until I started looking into the, some of the yogic systems and uh, some of the Asian systems, the, the health systems like Qigong. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed that breath was a very integral part. Uh, when I met the Gracies uh, in 89 and started at the ground floor of the uh, jiu-jitsu movement, I also noticed that these guys were breathing in a very particular way, and they had really good control of their breath. And you didn't hear hear them gulping, grunting, gasping or anything. And the more I started to look at this, the more I started to read up on it. So I discovered a couple of different breathing systems, you know, both uh, yoga based. And uh, it seems like the Russians were doing a lot of work with this breathing thing. There was this uh, guy, Butyako, that uh, developed this breathing system. Kind of controversial because he kind of went against normal medical models. So... Medical people don't like this guy, so they, you know. But I found that a lot of the things he said made perfect sense. Mm. One of the big impressions was uh, I read this book, Body, Mind, and Sport by John Duyard, who was uh, an American chiropractor who also was a physician in Ayurvedic medicine. Interesting. And he wrote this book on how to stay calm even when you're training and the importance of remaining calm when you train and not holding the breath involuntarily. Um, it's a thing called Valsava Sink, yes. very harmful, right. where you'll have a partial glottal closure and then you make these grunts and noises. You hear it in the gym all the time. Right. You hear it on the jiu-jitsu mat. It's very harmful and, according to him, life-shortening. Mm-hmm. And then this was affirmed. I actually went to the Summit of the Breathmasters in Moscow to, and uh, there was uh, three Russian physicians there mm-hmm. that were talking about these different breathing techniques as it relates to this Russian martial art called the system. Uh, in Russian, Sistema, the system. And it's a whole martial art based on breath. Now, I'm a hardcore jiu-jitsu guy, but I just was curious enough about Sistema to want to investigate. So I started putting together some ideas that I saw from the great Hicks and Gracie and some of these yogic sources and some of the Russian sources. And I started realizing that people don't know how to breathe and they're really dysfunctional. And they're all in upper chest, you know, the upper, upper lobes of the lungs, Mm-hmm. fight or flight mm-hmm. or shallow breathing mm-hmm. and no one's getting down in those lower lobes of the lungs you know rest and digest or all the calming receptors so when people are training they're literally putting themselves in this panic state they're it's almost like the whole workout is one big panic right. you become over adrenalized uh you know and that that adrenaline has its uh mm-hmm. you know you become like an adrenaline junkie sure 
I've seen people in the gym that just got to get their adrenaline fix. And I can imagine too, after the workout, you're, you know, you're going to remain in that more stressful state longer. And then you crash and burn. And, and just being in that more stressful state, you're going to be more catabolic for longer. And, you know, you're already kind of hampering your recovery if you're not learning how to relax. And the other thing too is it's, it's a good practice if you do practice martial arts, you know, the mind, being mindful of your breathing, even during stressful exercise. Uh, if you are in a, a situation, let's say in martial arts, for example, you can still remain calm even when you're, let's say, in a jiu-jitsu match or even in a self-defense situation. Because as soon as you go to the upper chest and you get in that, you know, get the panic receptors all flared up, you end up not being able to make good decisions. Your decision-making process goes out the window. Your, your motor skills go right out. You can learn to control these things mm. even in dire circumstances. So you can practice that by doing strenuous workouts in the gym and maintaining that control of your breath so that, God forbid, you would be in any kind of emergency situation. You'd be able to re- retain your calmness and stay cool and collected. That's one reason why in uh, Russia they're they're teaching this to a lot of their uh, special ops community. A lot of the people that uh, I worked with were former special ops soldiers now teaching these techniques. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting stuff, man. They claim it's nothing new. They claim that there was a warrior monk society, the uh, Russian Orthodox uh, Christian Church, had their version of like this Chinese Shaolin monks, okay. and that these were the the protectors of Christendom and Mother Russia, and that these guys had a whole system of breath control right. and breathing and martial arts that's uh, pretty native to Russia, that's not Asian influenced at all. I feel like you, uh, that ancient wisdom, right? Like I, from listening to other podcasts with you on, like you definitely have an appreciation for. You know, yeah, the time-tested wisdom that has been passed along for generation after generation. You know, modern science has only been around, let's say, for 150 years kind of thing. And when these traditions have been taught through generations, like, there's probably going to be relevant facts and truth coming out of them just because of the stand of time, really. And things like Ayurvedic medicine, like you mentioned, like you, you seem to have this very um, open-minded, holistic approach. And I just want to kind of take your, ask you about your angle on like, how do you incorporate that into your lifestyle currently and in, in, in your life? Well, one reason I got really interested in, in the mighty men of old, you know, okay. I mean, there were some really badass guys back in the day, you know, no doubt. And many of our modern athletes and so forth uh, would have a lot of trouble keeping up. You know, you, you, I'm sure you've read some of the studies on uh, even just your typical paleo man and his mm-hmm. day-to-day activity. He, he, he was like a professional athlete, you know? These guys were – and this was just like average guys, right? Just, just the, just it, it was survive. just the nature of survival. Right, yeah. So a lot, a, lot of, a lot of these guys were really something else. And, of course, it, it's not – you know, unlike, let's say – uh, modern mixed martial arts of the UFC. You know, there was no tapping out, man. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times your life depended on your skills as a fighter, as a soldier, uh, you know, and so forth, uh, as a hunter. And so I was always curious about, like, how do, they, how do these guys do it? You know, even in the last century, like in the eight, late 1800s, sure. yeah. amazing guys. And uh, one of the things that bothered me was, especially in modern times, a lot of the articles are written by pretty young guys who you must suspect are using performance-enhancing drugs. 
how would you know if they are or they're not? Some people admit it freely. A lot of people don't admit it. But you don't know because that de- definitely skews the system. So where are you, where are you to get pure information that isn't uh, adulterated with, and, and, you know, any of this kind of stuff? Well, you got to go back before the 1950s and look at what these guys were doing. Mm-hmm. And you can go back in history. And there, the information is there. Yeah. Figure out, like, okay, how are they training? What were they doing? What were some of their ideas, you know? And then you, you start looking at all these different systems, and then you can kind of get, like, a read, you know? Like, you'll see similarities across the board between the different cultures and so forth. Mm-hmm. And then you start to make up your own mind. And, you know, you like, as Bruce Lee said, you take what's useful and discard what, what isn't, you right. know? And that's was my whole interest. I was just really interested from from that point of view. Cool. What were people doing before they started using designer supplements and 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 all this other stuff? Right. Yeah. They just didn't have them. They didn't have. Like, yeah, they're achieving you know results in whatever their field was. Just right? normal food, man. Yeah. And yeah. they weren't even eating these super high protein sure. whey protein shake diets. And oh my god, I'm right. going catabolic, bro! It's been 15 <laughs> minutes from my order. I got to yeah. get my BCAs and yeah. my pre workout shake, yeah. my post workout. It's like so, yeah. You know, and these guys, a lot of them had jobs too. Yeah. You know, some of these guys put in hard hours, go and work out, and they were eating normal food, and they looked. Right. Marvelous. Can I get your opinion on, you know, what's what's your opinion on performance enhancers and everything like that? Because um, so many people these days, some of the logic behind it is, well, everybody's doing it. So if I need to compete, then I need to do it. You know, what, what's what's your philosophy around those things? Um, I, you know, personally, I feel like it's it's uh, it's artificial. You know, basically, it's artificial. It's not really tapping into what humans really are. You're you're enhancing yourself in some way. Well, I'm just curious, and what, what's your take on all? There's of that? no free lunch. There is a price to be paid for all this stuff. The the level which no one's really still sure. You've seen some horror stories. You know, you read about these pro football players. You know that uh, uh, just off the top of my head, Lao Zeta, for example, was pretty famous for his PEs. Right. And so forth. But I mean, I'm talking about like professional wrestlers, actors, right. uh, NFL football players, uh, track and field athletes, you know. Uh, it it dev- definitely has a deleterious effect on the body. But, you know, when you take this stuff, you don't know. Are you going to be one of the guys that it doesn't seem to affect? Are you going to be one of the guys that's going to have, you know, a stroke or a heart attack or, or whatever? You don't know. And no one really knows. But it is a form of cheating. You are cheating. You're going against the laws of nature. You're trying to mess around with your hormonal levels. There's ways that you can do it naturally. Uh, I used to take a lot of supplements. I used to have a $320 a month habit in supplements. It's a lot of shit. When was that? I was swelling, man. Uh, that was in my 40s to my 50s. Okay. Like the you know? 90s then? And, yeah. So that's, and a, that's an expensive habit for back I then. I realized what a waste of time because, you know, the truth, I actually felt way better when I stopped all that crap. I just got brainwashed like all these other young sure. guys. You know, I was written, I was reading you know, Fitness Rx and, you know, Muscle Head and Power and, yeah. you know, Meatball Magazine. And, you know, you, you, you start to get influenced by some of this stuff. And, you know, they're really slick with the way they advertise this. I'm not a scientist, you know. I mean, I, I have a, deg- a college degree in physical education and health, but I don't know about you. I I can't read studies. Maybe you can. 
to a but degree. You but got, it's not, hard to read them. When you get down to biochemistry and stuff, it's that's like, where, I don't know, good, you know, good science, bad science. They're still hard for me, too. Are they? Okay, you know, And they, I think they purposely make that. And, of course, you know, the study that's touting this particular wonder supplement this month, it's completely changed, you know, two months later. It's a whole new – it's just all about marketing and making money. And that's one another reason I decided to go back and start looking at what were the guys doing before all this stuff. There was amazing guys. There was people that did stuff that just defies the imagination. I'll give you an example. I, I grew up in a little town called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. It was a uh, it was founded on the meeting of three Indian trails in central Pennsylvania. Uh, it had five of the signers of the Declaration of Independence that lived there. Um, it was really famous for a lot of different things. It had the United States uh, Military College. It was an old Hessian barracks during uh, the Revolutionary War that uh, later became the U.S. military. But there was an Indian school, the Carlisle Indian School. And one of the uh, illustrious students there was Jim Thorpe. He was uh, voted as the greatest athlete of the last century. Wow. Jim, to give you an idea, now here's a guy that's just, you know, working normal jobs, you know. He was playing for the Carlisle Indian football team, eating normal food, right? They had a game in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and it's 18 miles away. And Jim Thorpe missed the bus. So he ran all the way to Harrisburg, <laughs> made it there in time to enter into the game at the halftime, right? He made it just after the halftime and still scored two touchdowns. Wow. I've heard this story well, before. This story. <laughs> that's incredible. Now, yeah. <clears throat> that's crazy. Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> the phenomenal com- combination of strength, endurance, yeah. cardio, endurance, you know, power, the, the power, speed yeah. to be able to do that. You know, now, okay, he was a phenom. Yes, he was. But uh, I'm just saying that there was plenty of tough old guys, mm-hmm. you know, that World War One, World War Two generations that were just living a normal food, right. you know, eating normal stuff, and yeah. they weren't spending hundreds of dollars like I did at one time on worthless supplements, and they were really something else. Mm-hmm. I think you can meet your full genetic potential, whatever that might be, mm-hmm. Just eating a you know a, a, a good, good healthy diet. This is a this is a nice segue maybe at least in you know from my thoughts about just diet and nutrition in general. Before I went to med school, I I was a nutrition major, and uh, I'd love to hear maybe some of your thoughts on diet for yourself personally and just in general. Um, you know, can you share some of that with us? I, uh, I've tried a lot of different stuff, you know, over the years. I was always really interested. I, I had a brief uh, stint with the vegetarianism when I was in college. Uh, I had read some things about uh, – I, I was suffering a lot from injuries that I had had. And I was already well on my way towards arthritis with this, you know, super high-protein diet that I was on at the time. That was, you know, that was the end thing. Also, bulking up was the end thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, not exactly the healthiest thing, uh, you know. Just because you can doesn't mean you should, <laughs> and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean any of these things are healthy, or you know. But at any rate, over the years, I, I've, I've probably read maybe fifty different things on nutrition and health and diet and so forth. What I finally settled on was this guy by the name of Dr. John Tilden. He was a turn of the century American physician, and he wrote this book 
called toxemia explained. He was a doctor just at the turn of the last century when big pharmaceutical was taking over the medical industry. And he railed against this at that time. He would probably roll over in his grave because he thought it was going to be stopped. He died uh, before, you know, it's become what it's become. Yeah. You know, now you go to the doctor, it's all about the pill, the potion, the needle, you know, whatever. Hopefully that's changing a bit. But Well, we, I, I love, I love to, of course, I haven't been to a doctor in 30 years, so I wouldn't know, but I avoid uh, no offense, Doc. But yeah. <laughs> I'm you're talking about this because I remember you talked about this on another podcast, and I downloaded that book and I started reading it. It's fascinating. Go on with it, yeah. This yeah, is really I mean, cool. Doctor Tilden believed, uh, and uh, I mean, if you read the book, he, he lays out a very logical approach to disease, and it, it all comes down to the, the immune system. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're basically digestive machines, and when our digestion is impaired by overloading it, either by eating too much or eating too often, or mixing too many foods in one meal. He calls that Mm. crowded nutrition. Mm. So he was very big advocate of simplifying your meals by keeping the amount of different things in the meal to a minimum. Uh, Some people call that food combining. He found that certain things seem to digest easier together, and certain things are really hard to digest. For example... The big bugaboo with children was missing starches and protein. That means you wouldn't have a cheese sandwich or pizza or uh, a meat sandwich like a uh, like a Subway uh, uh, hoagie. Sure. Sub, sub- sandwich, yeah. In Philly, we call them hoagies. Yeah, I know. But, but, I, I went to school down in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I so. mean, that would be – or, or okay. having uh, rice with your chicken or something like that. Okay. Now, okay, he he he, he – uh, he was very animate that it does differ from person to person. And, you know, a man that is working really hard, like a hardy outdoor lumberjack kind of lifestyle, a hardworking farmer, you know, you're outside in the fresh air, you can pretty much, you know, live on meat and coffee and, and seem to do okay. You know, and you can, yeah. you can you can eat just about anything and be fine. Right. So the activity really counterbalances whatever diet activity you're eating. Activity counterbalances a lot. Yeah. But when your digestion gets impaired, it creates uh, what uh, children refer to as toxemia. You begin to develop toxins in the body. Uh, now I've read, you know, some things about, uh, you know, like uh, glycated proteins and you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? You heard of the glycation theory of aging. And mm-hmm. there's all these different theories about True. why we get old. But a lot of it has to do with impaired di- digestion. So if you keep your digestion really strong and the digestive power is good by not eating too frequently, children recommended between four and five hours, keeping your food combinations very minimum, you know, like usually a protein in a salad or a starch in a salad or maybe a fruit-based meal, and keep it real simple that your health would be uh, fantastic. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it's almost going back to uh, like the whole foods diet idea, like eating real whole foods as opposed to processed and not mixing sorts together. Like if you're eating like just like a piece of meat, some salad, maybe yeah. whatever, and that's it. Really, I mean, you got to keep think, it simple, man. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Back to basically keep it simple, but like you got to think too. Like back in when our bodies were evolving. They're not going to have a selection of different foods. To choose from. <laughs> oh man, you'd so be lucky if you had just a mono diet, like right. one thing. So like you, you got to think the digestion probably evolved to like okay, I'm, I'm digesting asparagus right now or whatever was going in, right? And not like 
asparagus with butter and spices from India plus this plus that, right? It's probably it probably is just harder for it to, to work. Much harder to digest. And besides simplifying the foods, Tilden also was a huge advocate that if you do start to show cold symptoms, this is your body telling you that you've overloaded, hmm. that you have become toxic, so to speak. You know, uh, not toxic like smog, but it, it's like you you have you either suffer from what they call putrefaction, right, from proteins not digesting properly in the the large intestine, or fermentation that would be like starches or fruits, and you start to your body actually makes these toxic chemicals, which will eventually will cause you to uh, get a cold. And if you don't take care of it, it can change into a, uh, a flu or a, a fever. Mm-hmm. So and good. that he, he felt that cold germs actually are invited into the body as a way of helping you detox. Huh. That it's nature's way of helping you cleanse yourself and clean yourself out. And he advocated just resting in a dark room uh, with the lights out and just fasting on water and just resting for a day or two. You know, when you overload your digestive system like that, just like a little animal does, you know, when I used to keep pets as a child, I noticed that they go off their feed now and again, you could tell they weren't feeling so good. And they'd just lay in their little dog bed or their their, their little bed. And then eh, maybe like the next day, poof, they'd be up running around again, right back in their food. Yeah. But, you know, what do we do? We say, oh, you have to eat to keep up your strength. Oh, try to eat something. You know, the poor kid will be throwing his guts up. Literally with, you know, high projectile vomiting and mothers trying to get the, the chicken broth down his throat. It's like, no, let the, let the body rest from digestion. No food. You'll feel way better. I think there's something to that. And digestion takes up a huge amount of energy. We know that much for sure. A so, lot of energy. so if your body's constantly digesting tons of food, I mean, you, you're, you're pulling energy from somewhere else in your body too, which is potentially your immune system or whatever. And now your immune system is going to be compromised and, you know, cold gets in and now you're sick, right? Um, all, all sorts of inflammation. You, know, you get these partially digested uh, protein molecules. Crossing the, the 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 blood membrane, and you know the next thing you know, you, you're getting arthritic problems in your joints. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking thing, there's a lot that has to you know a lot to be said also about the types of foods that people are eating that they're exposed to now, right? Processed oh, foods, man. Frank, Franken foods, right? Yeah. Things <laughs> that never existed before in the history of yeah. man. I mean, right. the amount of processed sugar we have eaten yeah. in this last century in comparison to before the industrial revolution yeah. is right. massive. You know. Yes, 100%. And the, the whole, the whole food's like... Yeah, it is a bit of a crisis, you know. Uh, I mean, the obesity uh, epidemic in the U.S. is like really bad. I don't know how it is here in Canada. but It's, it's uh, pretty close. The fattest uh, segment in the world right now is U.S. women, 48% obese. Wow. Not, not overweight. 48%. Obese. Obese. Wow. I, yeah. think, I think the actual overweight is closer to mm. 70%. Wow. So it's really high, and I, I'm, I travel full time. Yeah. I travel all over the world, so I get to see all these different segments, and I'm noticing that everyone's catching up. To give an example, I went to Iceland, I think the first time in 2004, and I just noticed that every year, at that time, by the way, I, I didn't really see any really obese people or anybody really fat, you know? Yep. And I just noticed recently 
that it's wow people getting worse really, everywhere yeah the kids the younger guys you're seeing a lot of overweight that you never saw there before at all yeah it, it was like wow just in a few years of you know all these american fast food type things you're already starting to see it take its toll and on, on mm. uh like the younger people coming up Really? Speaking of your lifestyle a little bit, so the fitness and nutrition part is definitely one part of who Steve Maxwell is and <laughs> what you're about. But also, you you travel constantly, and you live out of a duffel bag, from what I hear. Pretty much, Pretty, not in it, but I sure not can. Not in the duffel bag, but out of. <laughs> out of. Um, yeah. It wasn't always that way, by the way. I was just curious. I, you know, I like, started like a lot of people as a householder. You know, I had uh, you know the the four story brownstone house with the garage and. You know, yeah, and so what, the what, uh, the gym and all that. But uh, once I scaled down, I decided that uh, all those material things were certainly not the route to happiness. Uh, I just kept downsizing more and more to eventually just working out of one bag. And part of part of that also is just logistics, and uh, you know, it, it's just it's just much easier right. when you own very little. That way, you can move around a lot and not be encumbered by your personal possessions. You're not being weighed down. I can just go anywhere that there is an internet. And I make my living three ways. One is online coaching uh, for for fat loss and and fitness programs. The other is uh, the seminars. And then I sell video uh, downloads, like tutorials on different exercise, you know, whether it be like kettlebell, body weight, uh, you know, mobility. I'm really big into the whole mobility thing. Uh, people can buy these downloads off my website. And between those three sources of income, I can pretty much live anywhere I want. But it took me a while. I mean, it's not, sure. you know, people ask me all the time, well, how can I do this? Well, right. dude, I spent a lifetime setting this up and engineering it to do this. You know, you right. have to, I, you get your name out there and people begin to recognize you as someone that knows some stuff. Yep. Would you consider yourself a minimalist then? Uh, oh, pff, definitely. I have one 42-liter bag and then a, a small little carry-on bag, and that's everything I have. And um, what's what's the biggest difference you notice from you know from a homeowner to the way you live now and, and how it's changed your life? Well, it's a lot less stress. You, you know, I, I live in Airbnbs and uh, hotels, and I try to use the same hotel chain because you get these amazing upgrades. So it sounds like really expensive, and it was in the beginning. But then it gets really cheap because then you, you get free nights, uh, free upgrades. You use the same airline, the same uh, credit cards, and you get all these uh, uh, rewards points. And people, I don't think they'd take enough advantage of that stuff. My first two years, I was a real rookie, and I wasn't taking advantage. And then when I really looked at it and crunched the numbers, I thought – I'm really missing out because mm-hmm. these companies, they really do give you some good rewards for, for using their products. So, hmm. but for me personally, it, it's like a huge weight was lifted off my neck and shoulders. You know, you just don't have anything to worry about, but yourself. Yeah. Dipping into that a little deeper, like, do you have any kind of philosophical beliefs along that line, like, or, or spiritual beliefs even? Associated like, with minerals? Yeah, the things that you have in your life. Like, I, I think I think that uh, people, I mean, in America, I can speak from America point of view at least, uh, people tend to really accumulate a lot. It's like this accumulation mindset, and it's all in the name of security. And security is like the lowest level of consciousness. It's all based on fear, fear that you're not going to have enough, 
fear that, you know, you got to, you know, squirrel away for the future because, you know, things are going to get really bad. So it's like a negative outlook right from the, the, uh, the get-go. And with this accumulation mindset, right, of material things in your home, I mean, I've been to people's homes where literally every cupboard would just be jammed. Every closet would be crammed with clothes and boots and shoes and sporting equipment. The garage would be overrun. It would be to the point where they'd have to go get a rental locker to put even more stuff, right? It's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. That same mindset is what's making people fat, Mm. right? They start accumulating extra flesh around their bodies. It's the same idea. It's the same mindset. It's it's, It's the same consciousness, accumulation consciousness. But it's all a fear-based mentality. It's, it's all based on the idea that the universe is limited and that there's not enough to go around and that I got to store up extra so that I'll have enough. Mm. But I'm here to tell you that the universe always appro- uh, provides, but you have to have undying, unrelenting faith. And if you don't have that faith, it's not going to work. I wasn't always that way. You know, it took a while, a lot of meditation and, and you know, uh, painful self-introspection and a lot of affirmation. I'm a huge believer in making affirmations, positive affirmations. In other words, uh, we're constantly bombarded with these thoughts that hit our minds. Some of these thoughts are not our own. A lot of these thoughts were put in there by... Our parents, your mother, uh, teachers, clergymen, you know, a lot of times they're these, yeah, television advertising, you know, the collective consciousness, you know, you just hear things, you read things, you see things on the newscaster and you get these voices in your mind that you're constantly plagued by. A lot of people are completely unaware of these inner conversations, but they're happening all the time. Hundreds of ideas going through your mind every minute. What did you do to become more aware of those things? Well, the awareness was the first step. Once I became aware of that, then I started be, be, became conscious of it. That's all about becoming a conscious person. Now I know that this exists. I know the problem exists, and that's the first step to, to fixing it. The second was, well, I'm not going to accept all these thoughts. I'm going to reject certain thoughts, and I'm going to hold on to certain thoughts. And to reinforce the thoughts that I want to keep and discard the thoughts that I don't want – that required the affirmation and 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 uh, making continual affirmations, rejecting old thoughts, and then the uh, the meditations. Meditations. You know, going going and I'm not talking about like meditating like a monk per se. You can do that. You know, there's a lot of different techniques. I, I like to use a more scientific approach. I like that binaural beats. Mm-hmm. I like Kelly Howell in particular. Uh, she does this uh, Universal Mind Meditation 1 and 2. That's my favorite. Uh, maybe you've heard of this book, The Secret, mm-hmm. written yeah. by U.A. Anderson, who was yeah. a, uh, a a spiritual master. Uh, anyway, it's based on his work. And uh, it's really nice. Cool. It puts you in a really good space. And you find yourself just always in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing at the right time. You know, uh, the people that need me most – uh, find their way to me. The people I need most, I somehow connect to them. The things start going your way. And instead of like slogging through life, you start surfing through life. Hmm. You know, you, the, life is no longer a struggle. You're just kind of like, you know, floating along. Yeah. yeah. No pun. 
So would you say it was kind of the awareness led to the consciousness of these thoughts, kind of making that shift internally in your mind, having a little bit more control over it? Well, or this influence of like what you're going to keep in there, what you're going to reject. And then when, when and how, if you can explain, like did the faith start to creep in? Is it kind of when you started noticing the synchronicities, like the, the ease of things, like when did the faith part, like when did you start to be like, you know what, I don't know what this is, but I am connected to this. And like, can you kind of dive into that a little bit? I, I at first became aware, uh, some people refer to this as uh, mental science. You know, there was the uh, the new thought movement uh, at the turn of the last century. Is that like Ernest Holmes? Ernest stuff? Holmes is my favorite guy, but uh, uh, who was the guy that wrote as a man thinker? Mm. That was my first book. Okay. One of my first oh, I had that great book. <laughs> and then yes, I, I read, uh, after a man thinketh, I read Forrest Shin, uh, The Word is Your Wand. In other words, words are powerful. Mm. What you say, you put into action because it's almost like a vibratory pattern. And once I understood the law of attraction and the word of, you know, the law of vibration, I realized that what you're putting out is what you're getting. I mean, a lot of the religions have talked about this, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's been uh, in a lot of the great religions as well. And um, once I became aware of the whole thing, I just started over time, just monitoring more and more and more what, what it was I was doing. But I'll tell you that, as a man thinketh, by James Allen. Yes, James yes. That really made a profound influence. And I, I read some other things on visualization, you know. And uh, I had some really good manifestations almost immediately off my visualization. You know, visualization is basically imaging in your mind's eye uh, events, future events that you would like to occur. And uh, I manifested this awesome bicycle one time. <laughs> Literally, a guy just gave it to me. It's fantastic, wow. like, uh, you know, like a $1,000 bike. Crazy. Yeah. And so with that, it's how – because a lot of people, I think, get stuck with that law of attraction stuff in terms of, like, if they just think about it, it'll come into being. Um, where I'm starting to learn from myself is, like, how much you have to, like, bring that vibration in, bring that feeling, like – and, and that's the learning I'm kind of going through, I think. It's all about that feeling. You yeah. hit it right in the head. Right. You're 100% right. It's the feeling. I was missing that too. At first, I could really image it. Mm -hmm. And I could feel it. I could almost taste it, you know. But the, the part of the manifestation process is generating the feeling that it's already happened. Mm. That's where the faith comes in. You have to believe it's already happened. You can't think that's going to happen sometime in the future, you got to feel like it's right now. You, you ever read Eckhart Tolle, yeah, The oh Power yeah. of Now? Totally. you got to be totally in the now with that idea. But then there's a third ingredient that I was missing, that sometimes my manifestation process wasn't coming through, and that was the feeling of gratitude. I didn't realize that you have to also generate tremendous feelings of gratitude, also as if it's already happened. But on top of that, being grateful for every single thing you have, because let's say you're in a sucky situation. you got to start looking at things that you're grateful for, because if you're constantly focused on the suck, <laughs> yep. you're, going to get, you're going to stay stuck in the suck. You're not going to be able to get out of it, man. Yeah. You're going to be really, you're going to be limited with how well the manifestation process is going to work. 
That's cool. You know, and so I, I, a really good book for your listeners is uh, yep. uh, Rhonda Byrne. Uh, I think it's called The Power of Gratitude. No, no, no. I'm sorry. The Magic. The Magic. The Magic. Rhonda cool. Byrne. Cool. The Magic. She was also a disciple of U.A. Anderson. So you're a big believer in being able to like manifest your own reality, create what you want out of your life. And there's a lot of people in Maybe I'm lumping people into a, a one one view, but there seems to be a lot of kind of unhappy people in general. Yeah, much so. Right? And, you know, you always hear people say, "Well, well, what about the kid that was born like with uh, mental deficiencies, or the guy that was born with withered legs, or, or you know, like, uh, well, how, what do you say to a guy that you know has uh, stage three cancer or whatever? You know, I, I mean, it's harsh." But I really do believe that we all have created whatever situation we're in and that in some cases you have to believe now, as I do, in reincarnation and soul choice. Souls choose to enter the lives that they are meant to enter. So you have this past karma that you bring with you. I learned that. I I studied a lot of Buddhism. Right. I've had a lot of Buddhist friends that were schooling me on this because I can never understand that either. Well, if it's true that you can pretty much create your reality through your, your thinking and your thoughts and all this, how about the people in these really horrible situations that it just seems like by chance they got stuck in? And to the, to, to the Buddhist philosophy, no, that wasn't by chance. Hmm. It was what they needed to go through and that their soul actually chose to go into that particular set of circumstances to learn whatever life's lessons so that they could – transmute and go on to a, to a higher level. And I wasn't necessarily saying like people who are in like severe like pain or something like that. I'm talking about the general like dissatisfaction that it seems to be so prevalent, you know. And I'm just curious like you know from if you zoom out a little bit from a societal perspective, where do you think that's all coming from? Well, we talked about this the other day, Carlos, about kids being raised with a little bit too much self-esteem sometimes. Yeah, and <laughs> I remember. Trying to made, you know, being made to feel that they're better than what they are or they're, you know, that they're deserving of some kind of praise when they're re- in reality they haven't really done anything hmm. yet, you know. You right. see that a lot being a former physical education teacher in the public schools and all that. You know, I, I don't believe that people should have low esteem, but, you know, having this high esteem – isn't necessarily the best thing either. So people are raised and kind of mollycoddled a little bit, given false expectations and so forth. Mm-hmm. What know? about what about you think? Um, you know, the lack of traditional rites of passages and things like that. Like well, that's a know, huge one too, man. Like a vision quest or something. There's you know? nothing like that in right. modern society for 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 uh, people of uh, European ancestry. Right. Nothing. Right. Um, the closest thing that comes to it is maybe. Like the Crucible in the U.S. Marine Corps, or sure. uh, well, we were going to say before, like you know, we talked about going through college football. Like to a degree, like you get challenged, you get tested, you got to have discipline, you work as a team, whatever. But you know, it's still, it's I not think there is a certain rite of passage there. Like I actually played uh, football at University of California, Pennsylvania, just okay. south of Pittsburgh. Do you know where that school? Yeah, is? sure. And uh, I felt like there was a bit of a rite of passage for myself, especially into mascul- masculinity, because I you know I came out of like you know suburbs of on you know Toronto, Ontario, and I got thrown in this environment that was you know a bunch of savages, really. 
and I had to kind of go through that whole process and I, and it was difficult, but I came out the other end and it definitely added to my character and my work ethic and drive and who I am today. Right. And I feel like, I feel like you do get those rites of passages in certain ways, but it's not necessarily formalized, you know? And I think it's lacking a depth personally. Like, you know, it's very, I think, well documented that a lot of ex-athletes do seem to do very well in, in, you know, corporate America, let's say, or, you know, like in terms of our, our terms of success in our civilization currently of doing well in business or whatever, like, cause they have that drive, that work at that discipline. But I think it lacks, it can lack a depth of this. So why this dissatisfaction still, where is this disconnect happening? Where are we lacking something that keeps us, you know, finding gratitude, um, you know, connecting with some level of faith because ultimately there is the unknown and we're here and so it's like you got to trust that I'm here for a reason, kind of. Well, a lot, a lot of people don't have any real purpose in what they're doing. You know, mm-hmm. you know, just making a living. And I mean, we are all told, you know, you got to get your education, so you're not going to be a bum. Yep, step one, and, you know, and then you graduate and you get that that job, you know, that good salary, and then you get married, and then you buy the little house with the picket fence and you have the 2.5 kids and life is happily ever after, you know? Some people refer to that as the American dream, but I think there's other countries that probably have that same concept. And that's just what you do, right? And for a lot of people, that's not very fulfilling, you know, just to propagate the, the species. Right. You know, as they say, every rat, cat, and dog can have offspring. It doesn't take much to fornicate and produce offspring. So, you know, if your whole purpose is just, you know, making babies and you're just overpopulating the world, I mean, seriously, yeah. it's not a real fulfilling thing. And people that try to live through their kids, that's not fulfilling at all mm. in my my way of thinking. I think we all need to find ways to help our fellow man and help uh, lift, lift people up and to put a voice and a message out there that, that you know, that they can – be motivating in some way. Yeah. And I, I do realize that there are people stuck in like really ordinary kind of situations, but you can do the ordinary in, in, in an extraordinary way. I mean, we've all met like really amazing people. You know, I, I, I used to know this guy that used to do gardening, you know, and he, he was like a landscape guy and he just went around doing odd jobs. He's just one of the most spiritual guys I ever met. This guy was just the most pleasant guy to be around. Very fulfilled, very happy with everything he was doing. A, a really good um, show is on Netflix. I'm thinking it was, it was about happiness. Anyone see this show? Uh, m- maybe. They, they, interview, they interviewed. It was all about happiness. Yeah. And they, uh, I think it was on Netflix. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, they I they were interviewing all these yeah. different guys. And yeah. the happiest guy was the rickshaw driver. Yeah. All right. This in India. This guy had nothing, man. He lived in a dirt hut, but he was really happy. Hmm. And the most unhappy guy was the multimillionaire uh, Hong Kong business guy that was just hyper stressed, and you know he had like you know all the amenities and you know the the jets and the the private cars and the high rise penthouse and the hmm. suits and and he was the un- most unhappy of all. So this whole idea that you can get happiness through, you know, making a lot of money and gathering uh, material things, 
Not really. Yeah. Uh, it, you, change, you know, and the funny thing some, is, it's creative outlet. I think is yeah, another word. Right. Like that uh, that executive, right? It's a Japanese executive. That guy probably has so much desire, so much craving to go out and build and accumulate or whatever. Whereas the rickshaw driver, he's as happy as can be. Drive his little rickshaw around, very little stress. You know, in acceptance of what his life is. But it's like the exec who's a super driven, most likely kind of guy is always like craving and striving for more to fill something inside of him. So it almost is self-explanatory why that guy is not as happy because he's just not fulfilled and he's looking for it externally. Well, that's it. You just said it. It's looking externally. The whole secret is it's already there. You are already are complete. You don't have to add to yourself. You don't have to keep adding by money or jobs or materialism or some people collect experiences like you would, you know, they're, they're chronically traveling, to, but for the experience, right. you know, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. because they're always trying to find something outside themselves in order to find some type of fulfillment. When in reality, it's there all the while. You are a complete unit unto yourself. Your higher self, your spirit, whatever you want to call it, is absolutely complete. I think Eckhart Tolle talked about that really, really well. Yeah. It's going outside yourself chronically. And, you know, everyone was sold a bill of goods in, in modern U.S. society. You know, that it's always outside, 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 more, more, more. You know, yeah. and I don't know if you want to go down this path too much right now, but since I have you here, um, you know, make America great again. You know, this is like this, the, the tagline of, you know, he, I, I will admit I was kind of a secret Trump supporter. Yeah. For one reason, selfish reason, 100 percent. I go to Russia a lot. <laughs> oh, so, you know, so you want some good relations I, over I there? I knew that just in if case. Clinton got in there, things would be really rancorous between yeah. the Russia and the U.S. I like going to Russia. I like Russian people. Yeah, uh, I, I trained martial arts there. It's going to be way easier for me getting in and out of that country. So that yeah. was real selfish. But yeah. like I told my uh, son, who was uh, lives in Philly, and they were a real Clinton's. Uh, uh, hotbed of support. Uh, I said he was really upset. I said, Zach, your day to day life isn't going to change one iota. It didn't matter. Ultimately, you know, we all can kind of control our own. I mean, I go to communist China, and things in China are really brutal. I mean, when uh, the air pollution and oh, it's just yeah, awful place, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of people that are very happy there, that are self-fulfilled, that are working their lives the way they want them to be. I know a couple of people, you know. I did a four-city tour, uh, some seminars there. So it doesn't matter. Even, you know, it doesn't matter how repressive the culture. You can make a good life for yourself if you have the right mindset. Yeah, and the reason I was bringing up the whole Trump thing is he, he does seem to be very, like, you know, he wants to fire up the economy and get that going and perpetuate that kind of lifestyle of like more and accumulation. And I wonder if that's going to just kind of seep through the culture within North America more and maybe create like that desire for more and bigger and better and chasing and that well, kind of thing. I hope thing. they buy my video download. Then. <laughs> you know, I hope well, they come to my you know? but- I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking about like, just again, like we talked about seeking that fulfillment outside of ourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's endemic all over the world and not just the U S you know, I'm sure you find it here in Canada. Certainly you do in the UK, 
people are very, you know, yeah. uh, you know, one thing I've down been, in the dumps yeah. and uh, hmm. pretty upset with what went on there with that whole Brexit, Brexit, Brexit issue. Yeah. yeah, you know. But you know, uh, what you and I find though in my travels all over, people are more alike than they are different, and that. You know, despite our cultural differences and so forth, people just want a good life for themselves. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they do. Yeah, and they want peace. Yeah, I th- I think uh, you know that kind of going inward, that mindfulness, Eckhart Tolle kind of philosophy, living in the now, is extremely prevalent in Vancouver. I feel like you fit right in Vancouver if you ever wanted to relocate or permanently locate somewhere. Oh, it's a pretty nice little city. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's a nice place to live. A little rainy right now, but I think I can yeah. be used yeah. to it. But I feel like that. Um, momentum or that way of thinking that philosophy is catching on more at least in this city it's definitely very prevalent um i'm just curious from your own observations in your own travel do you see that kind of mentality spreading or is it not so much it's hard to say because see i'm traveling in a like circle you've heard the saying birds of a feather mm-hmm. yeah. it's just like for example we're all very fit we all train we hang out with other fit people. We go to gyms. Yet we're probably like less than 5% of the world's population. Yeah, It's predicted that like somewhere between 11 and 14% of most North, most North Americans even train at all, wow. let alone seriously. Now, okay, 14%. There's millions and millions and millions of people. But we see those people every day at the gym. Yeah. Right. And unless you're going to a place like Walmart or consistently, you yeah. know, <laughs> well, it's a funny thing. Or We're whatever. You, you don't see that other stuff. So, you know, I'm with people of a slightly, what you know, not not to sound, uh, you can say whatever se- you want. Suffer from spiritual pride, but, yeah. you know, people of a higher consciousness. Yeah. Because, right. you yeah. know, that, that's the people that would be attracted to me. And that's the people that I would attract because it's the vibe I'm putting out. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, the one section of the town, the uh, the Walking Dead section, what was oh, downtown oh, east side, right over the corner. <laughs> yeah, okay, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Right. Well, see, I, I don't see those things. I never see those things. Mm-hmm. That's why when I hear travel warnings or danger, it's like that doesn't affect me because my consciousness is such that I'm not. That's not even going to appear in my world. Yeah. I, you know, my world will shield me from from that. Like I said, I'll be in the right place at the right time, do the right thing. At the right time, because there's a power greater than myself that that's leading me to, to do this, and you got to trust that. It's so true what you said. About it's like Mowgli yeah. in the Jungle Book, right? Yeah, he yeah. He was completely okay, and the animals didn't eat him because he had no fear. Mm. Innocence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, when you start being around certain circles, you start assuming that that circle maybe is bigger than what it really is. Like just the perfect Pretty example tiny, is the, the fitness uh, culture in general. Um, you start thinking that everyone's fit, but in reality, you said very small percentage. You guys might be the top 1.5% right here. Hmm. <laughs> well, in terms of uh, in, all in you terms have of to like do a, is just go to any, any mall, shopping mall right. or yeah. any place. Any movie theater, any place where people congregate for shopping or go to a food court anywhere in Canada. Let's do a general survey. You, you can see what I'm saying, man. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm not exaggerating. It's, it's, right. it's you know. Yeah. So you, you can't really comment to say that consciousness is rising everywhere just because you surround yourself with consciousness. <laughs> you would like people. to think, but, yeah. you know, all we can do as individuals is just to be the best 
self that we can be. Yeah. You know, just be the best expression of yourself that you can possibly be so that you can sort of serve as a light. You know? Yep. It doesn't, um, you know, I, I, I gave up jumping on causes and, you know, all this stuff a long, a long time ago. You, you, you just got to go internal and, and, and be the, the best person you can be. And then that, that's enough because that will influence the people that you deal with and that will influence the people that they deal with. And that's, that's how that whole thing works. Like that go yeah. internal. Yeah, go you, go in, you go internal. And like we were talking about, so, so many of the problems I see of unhappiness and so forth, everyone's going external. You can't do it. It doesn't work. There's nothing out there. It's already inside. It's already here. And you, you can, you know, that, that's not so easy for a person to hear, though, when they're really down in the dumps or, you know. It's the responsibility piece, right? It's like yeah. people, like, they want to blame. They want to blame something else for their conditions. You know, Everybody you don't... wants to blame somebody or some set of circumstances or whatever, you know. Yeah. But, you know. I'm not talking about the extreme cases either. I'm talking about, like, well, you're not happy with your job or your fit level of fitness. There's always another reason as to why it's not good enough, you know. And they don't want to make it – it's them doing it, you know. They don't want to put it on them. They want to put it on someone else or something else. Well, it's it's pretty shocking how uh, how quickly things can turn around, though, if you do start thinking more along this, these lines, you know. It's kind of like the old saying, if you don't like the dream you're in, just, you know, dream a new dream. Mm. And you can pretty rapidly uh, start making really good improvements in a rel- relatively short period of time. But you got you know you got to read you got to study you got it's a discipline just like training you know yeah you got to work with it right Right. it's interesting too um, you know why does one people somebody switch and somebody doesn't you know what's what's that turning point for people you know a lot you know if you want to talk about Eckhart Tolle he always says it's pain he's like when when people have suffered enough that's when they're going to make a change in something in their life sometimes it takes rock bottom you know right yeah I can attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. I yeah. mean, just in seeing people in therapy and, you know, it, it depending on where they are in their lives or what deficits they've experienced in their lives, it's, you know, all levels. Um, your average person to someone who's really destitute, you know, but um, change comes from within. Absolutely. I can agree with that. And, you know, as a trainer, I've often had people uh, talk about, well, I need to be motivated, you know. Mm. It's impossible. Mm. A person that isn't motivated from within, it's impossible for that external person to do that. Right. I mean, you can certainly be there to be supportive. You know, when I ran my gym, I used to do a lot of one-on-ones. But I found that I couldn't really motivate anyone at all. Right. All I could do would be there as a, in a supportive role. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Just like in therapy, right? Yeah, absolutely. You, the absolutely. people you do their own therapy, man. You You're just there to the guide tools. them through, right? You yeah. can present the tools and guide them along, but they need to actually work with you to make the change in themselves. What's the phrase? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink? That's Something right. like that? That's right. But yeah. we were laughing how personal training and, and working with the public in that domain isn't completely dissimilar from – you know, the mental health sciences. That's right. Therapy, yeah. man. Well, and that's because the, the mind and body aren't separate. No, nah, they're not, man. Right? But there's so much mental aspect of the training, too, you know? Yeah. 
Boy, there's some of the things people have told me in the middle of a workout. Oh, it's their therapy for you. You're, you're probably like a counselor. Like a bartender. Right. Right. Bartender or hairstylist. Hairstylists right. get a lot of that kind of there stuff. Barbers, go. right? But it's true. Yeah, yeah. It just probably comes out. You know? Awesome. It does. It really does. You become like an amateur psych- psychologist, yeah. you know, when yeah. you're dealing with these people. Whenever sure. you're working with anyone in that sort of like, yeah, one-on-one kind of setting, you know, it's in, people are, well, usually – and one she performs, start to reveal themselves in different ways or open up, if, you know, different sides of them will come out if you spend enough time with them. You get some crazy stuff going on sometimes. I bet, yeah. What's the craziest thing that ever happened to you as a trainer? Oh. Crazy uh, something that a client either... Well, the one crazy thing, so this is my last year, I was, I was working with this Canadian pro football team and my, the guy that I worked with the most, who was the most kind of loyal to me, because this is what kind of got me out of the industry. I didn't really appreciate, unlike these are professional athletes, I was kind of a new role. The Canadian Football League is not the NFL. Let's just put that really clearly financially, uh, resources, all that stuff. So they brought me on in this kind of trial position, and they kind of just had me there. And the, the players could use me if they wanted to, and I could work with them, you know. And I wasn't there to kill them. I was there to, like, support them. You know, injury prevention, all that kind of stuff. So the guy was the most that was really on board. Um, he was the center, and so you know he worked with me pretty much every day, which is awesome in one way, shape, or form. Marwan, Marwan, and it was during a game that he, because like, you know we got to, you get to know them right on a more yeah. intimate level, and it was during a game. I was also the the get back coach, so I had to be getting the players back off the sideline so we wouldn't get a flag. So I was always getting the players back, and he was frustrated out of play. And so I was getting him back, and he snapped on me, like, big time. Like, he looked like he was going to punch me. Wow. And Scary, because he's probably a pretty big guy, right? 6'3", 300 pounds probably. Woo. Right? So just huge. And then his fury and his pads and then that yeah, moment. And it was just super intense. And I just kind of think it was because of, like, we've had – he was, you know, he was able to release that kind of rage to me because I – had a more intimate relationship with him because of our training relationship, you know, like maybe it wouldn't have come out because it's like, I was this familiar face. It's like your brother, like, or your siblings, you will, you'll probably say some of the worst stuff ever to the people that are closest to you. Well, that happens a lot too. Yeah. I was thinking more in the gym itself, you know, but uh, oh. yeah, I could see in the, but in the, it, it's in the, all tied together. Yeah. But, but you get some, you get some real wackos sometimes. I had a guy come right. to me one time <laughs> that uh, if he didn't perform well in the workout and or miss a workout, he wanted me to paddle him. What? Swear to God. Wow. No, I said, nah, sorry. That doesn't Did work. that cost extra? Just <laughs> <out of curiosity? laughs> he, wanted be, he wanted to be spanked. I yeah. swear to God. And then wow. it was a very attractive woman that actually wanted the same thing. So I don't know what kind of thoughts I was putting out there to attract wow. people that want to get spanked. <laughs> okay. But uh, there I almost thought about it for a second. Really. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good-looking guy, Steve. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it was pretty funny, though. But, I mean, that's some weird stuff. But, I mean, there's plenty of weird stories I could tell you right, in, right. The, in the field of training. Yeah. But those were two of the more bizarre situations where literally masochistic very masochistic man what would you say about that doc i I don't know i I don't even (laughs) want to go there (laughs) i'm sure you've gotten some masochistic we didn't new episode we didn't hold another episode we'll save that for another another (laughs) well you know my name is steve maxwell and my initials are s and m subconsciously you put it out there subconsciously i might have been yeah they literally put in their planner training with S&M. Over, over, uh, <laughs> yeah, over, over 42 years, though, I've been in the You're field. Planting I could write some really interesting <laughs> uh, books. And, yeah. You know, just some of the weird, wacky situations oh, you I run into. Imagine. And yeah. Just, you know. 
people will tell you the craziest things. Right. I've had people come to me uh, high on, on cocaine. I wow. mean, just blasted out of their mind, you know. Wow. Or, mm-hmm. You know, you'd have to send them home. Actually, guys, look at them. You see their eyes and say, "You're high. Get out of here, man. Come back when you're straight." Yeah. Um. So you, you were on Rogan a couple times. Once, twice. Uh, I think three times. Three maybe, times. Maybe, was three it times? four? Three or four? I think. Yeah. How was your maybe three. How was your experience on the podcast? podcast like how was it was uh interview you know being interviewed by him because in a way like he definitely inspired us and a lot in our life to do a podcast and even to get into the float business and all that stuff well he's I was just a really interesting character uh i had been to his house a couple of times he had me there to uh, do some training for him yeah um and i really had a good time I, I got along with him quite well he is a super intelligent guy mm-hmm. really smart hmm. and very it seems funny. like it i've seen his stand-up act Actually, he gave me tickets uh, to a show in Toronto one time a few years back. Yeah. God, it was hilarious. Very cerebral comedy. Right. I mean, you, it's not, you know, he gets a little raunchy, but it's not, it's pretty high level stuff. It's not like lowbrow. Yeah, you, know? you have to be somewhat with it to understand yeah, his comedy. Yeah, no, he was comedy, getting right? into some pretty, you know, like etheric stuff. It yeah. was kind of fun, you know. Yeah, and evolutionary stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. So you've been on his podcast three times. And yeah, yeah. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just he's, curious. Uh, I, see the, I see the podcast we're going to see the stand-up we're going to see the UFC. Well, but he's, I don't a, really he's, see. A, he's a real manly man, I'll tell you. He, yeah. You know, he, he, he loves strong guy, eh? bow hunting. He's massively strong, mm. uh, good athlete. Probably yeah. uh, could have been a good MMA fighter himself had it come around in his younger days. Um, you know, I was 38 when I first started jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. This was 1989. Mm-hmm. And the first UFC was 93. I was an original investor in that. Oh, wow. The Gracies. Hori and Gracie, Hoyce's older brother, came up with that whole concept of the ultimate fight championship. And I, I and my then wife at the time, uh, D.C. Maxwell, threw our money in there along with a bunch of other people. And Horian got that whole thing started on a shoestring. Wow. Yeah. Cool. And, Imagine um, you stuck it out for a few years. Well, I wish I would have kept it like a little percentage of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be worth a lot of money. I'm sure Horian's thinking that too, man. Yeah. yeah. I just saw him in L.A. I, I just uh, had a lesson with him before I came here. Cool. I master Red Belt, uh, Elio Gracie's oldest son. We went over the uh, knife stick gun defenses of jiu-jitsu. Cool. A lot of people don't realize that jiu-jitsu is a fantastic Self-defense. Martial arts. Well, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, and you're going to North Van BJJ. That's where yeah. Mike and I trained for years. I trained with Mark uh, Mark Mer- uh, Merins. Merins, I can't believe. I've trained with him for almost eight years. I screwed up his name. <laughs> but uh, great guy. Uh, in terms, I think you'll really resonate with him when you go up there. He's very level-headed and very you know, smart with his approach. And he introduced the Gracie combatives to his school just because it is an awesome self-defense system. Well, um, I trained with uh, Hiron. Hiron actually had me come in and uh, teach part of his class. Cool. I had trained with his father, Hora, who was my first martial arts instructor, by the way. He took me up through uh, Brown Belt, him and Hoyce both. Cool. And then I uh, uh, went with the uh, second eldest brother, Helson. But... Uh, Hiron, uh, I knew from, he was just a little boy at the time, and I can't believe what an amazing guy he's turned out to be. Mm. Such a wonderful young man and an amazing martial arts teacher in his own right. And uh, then we rolled together, you know, and he was showing me some of his developments, and it was like, wow, man, this guy is so good. Cool. So good. So he was telling me about the young, what was the fellow's name in Vancouver? Mark. 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 Yeah, I've never met him, but he... uh, 
he Hiron had nothing but high praise for this guy. So he's you know, he's awesome. and Hiron doesn't say that just about anybody. So cool. I figure he's like um, it must be it's going to be really nice. I'm looking forward to it this weekend. Yeah. He's like that traditional martial arts master. You know, he's got the honor, the respect, the spiritual humility. side, the philosophy, the humility. Yet he is amazing at what he does. Yeah, well, that's yeah. it's important to have all those things. Totally, I, I yeah. think, you know. And just as a side little factoid, were you the first North American or first American to receive a black belt under in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? Uh, not the first. Uh, the Machados had actually given it out. I think okay. a couple of black belts. Okay, uh, I was early on the list. Sure. I, th- I think Craig Kukok might have been the very first Gracie black belt okay. in the United States. I, I was definitely one of the very early guys. In that very like beginning era, at least, Ish. yeah, yeah, cool. maybe, maybe I was definitely Helson Gracie's first black belt. Cool. He was the second oldest eldest son of Elio Gracie. Elio, being for your listeners that might not know, was the little Brazilian guy, one of five brothers that had learned from uh, this Japanese immigrant Maeda. At any rate, Elio was the one that is credited largely with converting Japanese jiu-jitsu into. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yes. Yeah. And I trained with his son. So his second son, Helson, I was his first black belt. Cool. Wow. And he had never given a black belt in North America. So sure. I felt pretty honored. It's a pretty direct lineage. Uh, yeah, I was very lucky. I was always very lucky to have really good mentors and many of the things I was interested in. When I really got interested, I got keenly interested, and I would seek out the best that I, that I could. Cool. And I was willing to put the time and money and uh, travel to seek these people out. Cool. So, yeah, I, I feel very, speaking of gratitude, yeah. great, great gratitude for the teachers and mentors. Uh, an education that w- would be unparalleled, I, I can't imagine. Cool. Well, I can imagine a lot of people, uh, you know, are, are can express the same about yourself. You know, they can, it's really cool that you're making yourself as available as you do with your chosen lifestyle, this nomadic lifestyle of traveling all around the world and giving these seminars and just, you know, connecting with people in real person, going to their country. Like a lot of these people probably could never, they couldn't come to America. They couldn't come and see you or, or another uh, mentor or someone of that caliber or someone with your experience. So I think it's really cool that you're going around and um, making yourself available to countries that would have never they wouldn't have a chance well you know? I, I do enjoy the travel i mean it is uh somewhat adventuresome yeah and uh i always had that that bug even when i was younger you know uh once once i opened up my gym exercise in 1990 i, I ran the first jiu-jitsu school in the eastern seaboard uh, and uh it, it was uh quite quite a it was called maxercise the gym and i ran that for uh almost 17 years with my ex-wife and you kind of get stuck, you know, once you open up a brick and mortar business like that. You can't go anywhere. Yeah. You know, <laughs> tell I me was, about it. Yeah. You know, besides we teaching jujitsu <laughs> and, you know, doing personal training, I, 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 I wasn't able to get anywhere. And then after I got divorced and sold the, the, uh, the business, then I was pretty much free. And I realized that, uh, you know, ideas and knowledge are power and people are willing to pay for these things. So once I, figured that out and just got everything down to that that one bag i was able to just pretty much go Mm -hmm. but i do tell people there's not everyone likes to travel and you know the extreme minimalism that i'm doing isn't for everyone i don't advocate that everyone just get rid of everything they own and just go out on the road 
But I would say this. Uh, I think everyone has wasted their life. You know, they waste a lot of stuff and or they have a lot of excess accumulation. So just I would encourage anyone just to go through their drawers, and their bureaus and their closets, their attic and their garage and look at all the stuff that they haven't used within, let's say, the last six months. And then just give it away to charity. Just give it away. Give it's it easy. to people that need it or trash it. Just get rid of it. You know, yeah. maybe someone doesn't need your junk. Well, it feels good. And that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm telling you, cleaning out like that. Wow. It makes you feel so light. Yeah. And if you are, uh, if you are having weight control issues and fat loss issues, it's not just about, you know, uh, diet and exercise. You know, there is a mindset to it too. Doctor, you could, you could back me up on that. There's there's a lean mentality that goes with it. You know, if, and by doing something like, you know, cleaning out and just get rid of all the excess out of your, your the clutter out of your daily life, you will start to think leaner. Yeah. And you'll just find yourself just eating less and doing more. Hmm. It becomes, you know, the, the mindset makes it effortless. Yeah. Well, I, Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate, have you heard of Gabor Mate? I have not. Okay. I think you would I have to go check really him appreciate out. him, but he's, he's always commenting on how you can't separate the, indi- in the, uh, the person from the environment, right? So if you change the environment, you're going to change the mm. person, which makes a lot of sense, obviously. And um, so that can speak very closely to why like, you'll see probably immediate changes of one form or another by just clearing out the crap. Well, you know, it's funny, too. You just saying that just remind me of something. You know, like I, I can tell a lot um, about a person just looking at the way they, they, they keep, let's say, their, their bedroom. Mm-hmm. Like messy, right? <clears throat> Unmade bed and all that. Right. You know, messy messy room, uh, cluttered mind. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have this discipline. Even in hotels, I will make my bed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just all part of yeah. just the discipline of keeping orderliness in your life. Mm-hmm. Even something as simple as making it bed has become like a little ritual, kind of calming. But see, it's it's that mindset that just sets the whole, the whole day. Yeah. Even though there's maids and all this stuff that can come in and do it, I do it. Right. The ritual behind it. It's maybe. the ritual behind it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just cleaned out my whole place and got rid of a lot of stuff, and uh, very clear, uh, very clutter free now. And um, I'm still like, I'm still getting used to that environment. You know, was, we we gave maybe six, seven boxes of stuff away to like Salvation Army, so um, it feels good. And I'm looking forward to just seeing how my year shapes up. And so far, man, the year's been shaping up pretty awesome because we've been having. Amazing podcast guests and new opportunities come up for us. And uh, I don't know if it corresponded with me clearing out my stuff, but it's working so far. So, <laughs> Heck yeah, man. And, yeah. and, and did, didn't you notice like that feeling of space? Oh, yeah. And calmness, a certain calmness. A sort of calmness. Yeah, yeah. And a kind of exhilaration. And, and yeah. And when I go home, I'm like, ah, oh, this is this is pretty relaxed around it's here. It's like a neat. I don't have to go deal with that those things over there or whatever. You know. Yeah, the things start to 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 own you. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting we got into that because it it works. Give it, it a shot. It really does. And like I say, you don't have to become, you know, like is quite as extreme as 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 myself. But I think if everyone out there would just go ahead and go through the wardrobes and the 
the the mass accumulation closets going to feel a lot better. Yeah, life is just going to seem lighter somehow. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. This is one of those podcasts I could go. I could double up. I could go for another hour and a half. No problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, do you know uh, Daniele Bellelli? I don't. Oh, he's he's been, he's been a on Rogan a bunch of times. People, here. I'll have to go check your past podcast. Yeah. He was on Rogan like a whole host of times, but okay. um, yeah, it's just like I'm like all the Rogan guests. They want to go deep into conversation. You know, we can just keep going with this one. Yeah, you know. I was going to ask before, you, before we wrap it up, though, um, have you ever tried floating? I have, and I liked it. Okay. It was quite nice. Cool. I was trying to think where I did it. I just remember it was like really an amazing experience. Cool. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I could um, – it was complete sensory deprivation, yeah. like being in the amniotic fluid in the womb. Yeah. And I could hear my own heart. Yeah. That was pretty wild. Yeah. It gets so quiet, you hear your, your – own heart that's a hard thing to do yeah yep. it's basically you know it's one of the, it's a great tool to redirect the awareness from external to internal because it literally takes away the external and all you got left is you and i'm really surprised that um, at first i didn't think i was going to like it i thought oh this is going to be claustrophobic mm-hmm. and the salt water it, it just didn't sound inviting somehow uh it couldn't be anything further from the truth man. cool very yeah, cool. you just land there and you just go into a different universe. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty wild. So I would recommend cool. people try it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, this is cool. epic. This is yeah. a fantastic podcast. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. And, hey, thanks and for having me on. Man. I like here. to get my message out there. Yeah. And, yeah. and for the folks out there, it is maxwellsc.com. That's his website. You can check out, see those videos, uh, his blog, where he's going, the events, all the seminars. Um you know, it's been on lots of other podcasts as well. So if this is your first time um, chatting or hearing from Steve, go check out London Real and um, and Joe Rogan for sure. I know you've been on those several times, both. So uh, check out those as well because you, you you cover a lot of different stuff on all those podcasts. That's one of the things I've always been really interested about, attracted to you about is just your breadth and how you, you like you kind of said, you take a little bit from everything and incorporate it into what works for you. And I just... It's been, it's been fascinating. You've got a lot of wisdom and knowledge to pass along, so I appreciate it. Well, thanks. And next time you're in Vancouver, come in the summertime. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> next Absolutely. time. Yep. Cool. Well, Carl has helped me set this up this year, but we'll do it again we'll, for we'll, sure we'll in the again. summer. We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, – We'll go for a hike. Yeah, exactly. All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode <clears throat> or any other episode of Vancouver, please give us a like or a share online. Tweet it, share, uh, you know, subscribe, get subscribe, review ratings. And if you're in the area, come out to the meetups and uh, yep. meet Andy, Carlos, and myself. And we're usually there. And um, you know, it's really fun to, to connect with with the community face to face versus just us talking. So mm-hmm. come on out when you get the chance uh, on the Facebook group page. Any last words? No, I'm just grateful for Steve coming out and for you guys inviting me here to take part in this. Well, I'm, I'm really, it's cool to yeah bring you in and have have you here. So maybe we can do it more often. Hey, that sounds great. Cool. I'm awesome. up for it. All righty. Till next time. To whatever is. To whatever is.